What a good day this is that we have together. I'm very thankful for all of you coming. I'm glad to be back for those that may or may not have known. I don't know why you would know, but I was on vacation. We were, uh, my wife and I were celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary, so that was fun. Yeah. This is, this is all for her. Imagine only what she puts up with. Um, I, did, I was here at 9 a.m. listening to Tom teach. Man, seriously, what an awesome job Tom's doing. Um, I, I just stopped doing 9 a.m. Tom, Tom's doing great. It's, it's really great. I'm super thankful, no doubt about it. And like Craig said, we have a big day today. So um, if you're ready, we'll get started. You ready? Um, today, we'll just jump right in with the title. If you have your notes, go ahead and pull them out. If you have your Bibles, get ready. We're going to be in Romans chapter 15. I want to talk to you about what I'm titling today's message as, uh, call it a show of strength. And uh, I just thought that was a catchy title. I mean, typically when we think about a show of strength, we might think about, I would think about, like the World's Strongest Man competition. You ever seen that? Sometimes we have guys that do weird stuff like this, like pulling a giant airplane by a rope. I mean, it's ridiculous what these guys can do. Or sometimes you might think of like a military show of strength. My mind goes back to the Cold War when people would march down the boulevards of their cities in the different countries and show their military might and let, let the world know, hey, we're going to build up all these arms with the hope that, well, we never have to use them, right? Or you could, getting closer to the theme we'll be talking about today, think about internal strength, strength of character. I think about Andreas Reichert. And I think about the strength that he's shown battling cancer and the fortitude that he has, trust in the Lord step by step, and so many of us standing with him in prayer through that very difficult trial. Now in Romans chapter 15, we want to obviously talk about spiritual strength, right? This is Paul, this is the book of Romans, this is the church age, uh, and how if we have spiritual strength in our lives, According to this passage of Scripture that we'll be looking at, we need to show it in a very specific and particular way. We'll jump right into Romans 15 and verse number 1 where it says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now it ought to get your attention while you're reading through the Bible when you see a little phrase like ought to. When, it, when God says that you ought to do something, Obviously, he's communicating a sense of duty. He, he's presenting to you a moral obligation on your part to do something with what you've been given, right? We see that all through the scriptures. For example, let me give you a couple of examples. Luke chapter 18 and verse number one says this, and he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Well, the, the people who ought to do something are all men, meaning all of mankind. All of mankind ought to always pray. Amen? Good idea. Uh, you can make a more narrowed target as, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28 where it says, so ought men, now we're talking about males who are married, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. So the first one was all men. The next one is all married men. And here in Romans, it's going to be all strong men and women. 
of faith in Jesus Christ. And so anybody who's grown in Christ, see, for example, our path of growth, discipleship, training, things that we offer and make available to you, and has achieved spiritual strength, according to Romans 15.1, has a moral obligation to do something with it. You have to do something with it. So before we get there, before we get into what it is we're supposed to be doing with it, let me just take a minute and define for us biblically what spiritual strength really is. And so searching the various references, I found the most concise definition in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, and verse number 8, where it says this, Therefore shall ye keep all the commandments which I command you this day. Why? That you may be strong. And go in and possess the land, whither you go to possess it. Obviously, this is Moses preaching to the nation of Israel just before they crossed the Jordan with Joshua to take the promised land and to fight those battles that were in front of them. So I put this statement in your notes. You gain spiritual strength by keeping the commandments, by keeping God's commandments. So, and it says keep all the commandments. So God has commandments in his word. He's got commandments for you. He had commandments for Israel that weren't for you, but they have plenty of commandments for you. And if you will consistently and regularly keep those commandments, when that becomes the habitual practice of your life, you are a commandment keeper. What happens is, is that you begin to qualify as a strong believer, right? And if that's the case, then... You need to use that strength that you've gained to go on a mission. And that's what we saw in Deuteronomy 11. We see it repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Same message, same people, same time in history. Deuteronomy 31, 7. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of a good courage. Why? Why must Joshua be strong? Because he's got something he needs to do. For thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord has sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit it. So if it's true that you gain strength by keeping the commandments, then the next thing in your notes is you show spiritual strength by engaging in warfare. That's how you show your spiritual strength. For Moses and Joshua, it was military warfare. For us... It's spiritual warfare. But don't kid yourselves, brothers and sisters. Spiritual warfare, it's just as real. Maybe more so, although unseen to the physical eye sometimes. Uh, you're aware of Ephesians chapter 6, but let me remind you, starting in verse number 10, where Paul writes to the Ephesian church and says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. There's a theme. Why is that? You'll see. And in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we, church, wrestle not against flesh and blood, like Moses and Joshua and the children of Israel in the promised land. But we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rules, rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So, Therefore, understanding who is strong and understanding what the strong need to do, of course, by contrast, we then understand who's weak. Because in this passage is also talking about the weak. The strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. 
So the weak certainly have to be those who are not keeping God's commandments. Those are those who constantly compromise on God's commandments. And, and Jesus told us explicitly that the flesh is weak, right? Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, the flesh is weak. And obviously your flesh is the part of you that never keeps God's commandments. If you keep God's commandments, you keep them in the spirit, right? You don't keep them in the flesh. But the Bible has a lot to say about those who are weak. In fact, Romans chapter 15, this is really deep. Are you all ready to write this down? Comes right after Romans 14. And Romans 14 actually is a long dissertation about who is weak. And they're defined for you. And actually, according to Romans 14, we find that people who judge others legalistically, well, those people are considered weak. Listen to the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. Let me stop there for just a second. So you have two different people. One has liberty in their life to go ahead and eat meats, maybe if they were offered unto idols, because they understand that an idol is nothing. Another brother doesn't feel that liberty to be able to eat the meat, and so he has to set rules around himself. He sets laws and rules around himself, say, I have to eat only this certain way for his conscience sake, right? And in the passage specifically, the one who has the rules set around him is the one who is weak in the faith. This is the context given to us in verse number one. Verse number three, let's continue. Let not him that eateth, the guy who has liberty, despise him that eateth not. I can't believe you're stuck in that old situation where you're not even allowed to eat meat. And you despise your brother. And let not him which eateth not, the guy who has the rules around him about what you can't do, well, let not him judge him that has liberty to go ahead and eat stuff. For God hath received him. For who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. So the legalist sets the rules and judges the guy that has the liberty to do something that the legalist doesn't have the liberty to do. That legalist, according to the Holy Spirit, is called weak. And according to the Bible, if we took the time and we're not going to do it, you can find people have a weak conscience, they have weak faith, they're weak in the flesh. And what I want to do for you in the context of what I want to try and communicate to you, and I believe the Lord has for us in Romans 15, is that it's fair then for us to conclude that all lost people are spiritually weak. That's not real hard to go to, right? If, if, if a lost person only operates in the flesh, then certainly a lost person is considered weak spiritually. No question about it. So let's go back to Romans chapter 15. This is all introductory. Romans chapter 15, verse number 2. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. So when you read that, your mind might naturally ask the question, who's my neighbor? 
Well, that would be a really good question, and it's actually an easy question to answer because that exact question was asked of Jesus Christ in the Bible, in Luke chapter 10 and verse number 29. Man came to Jesus Christ, says, but he willing to justify himself, and by the way, who would ask such a question, who's my neighbor, unless you were looking for a loophole to not have to do what you're supposed to do for your neighbor. Looking to justify himself, right? He said unto Jesus, who's my neighbor? And we're not going to look at Luke chapter 10, but if you're familiar with it or you can look it up on your own, continuing down the verses after, Jesus gives the famous story of the Good Samaritan. And the guy's sick by the wayside, and the priests and the Levites, they just look at him and keep going. But this guy who's a Samaritan, despised by the Jews, stops and helps the guy. He heals him, he binds up his wounds, he takes him to an inn, he gives the guy money to keep taking care of him. And so at the end of the day, the Good Samaritan story is the answer to the question, who's my neighbor, right? So if you're going to do good to your neighbor, right, if that's what Romans 15, 2, let us please his neighbor for his good, well, your neighbor is anybody. It's everybody. And, and doing that is showing mercy to somebody who has need. The Good Samaritan story is a physical illustration of a spiritual reality. And it's our duty, remember, we ought to do some things, we who are strong. Our duty is actually twofold, going back to verse number one. We are to bear the infirmities of the weak. In other words, we're to help them out. And not to please ourselves. So we're to help them out even when it hurts us to do it. Even when it's hard for us to do it. And I say all of that to say that that, my friends, is the perfect description of the life of a missionary. That's what missionaries do. They stand as strong men, bearing the infirmities of the weak and not pleasing themselves practically while carrying out that mission. Now, it's already been mentioned, and most of you know this already, but in case you didn't, we are officially commissioning the Nigros today to go to Albania for a one-year ministry internship. We, I, myself, and the two of them will be leaving this Tuesday evening. Okay, be praying for us. Um, we're going to leave together, but only I'm coming back, right, on the 25th. And, and this is a big step for them, right? Today's study in Romans 15, was actually designed, as I was studying, it's designed for them. But it's actually for all of us, right? It's actually for all of us to understand, because I want them to understand what awaits them, but I want you to understand what awaits them, so you can be praying for them. I want you to consider what God reveals awaits you, if and when it's your turn to step up to the plate. And that's important. So a spiritual show of strength occurs when a person with demonstrated spiritual strength is called out to go out on a mission, to bear the infirmities of the weak, especially in places where it's not personally comfortable to do so. So let me just pray real quick. We'll jump into point number one, and uh, we'll work through, actually, the next 20 verses. It won't take that long. We'll be okay. Lord Jesus, we do love you and thank you for this particular section of Scripture. I pray that as we continue, 
you take these points and just illuminate them to our hearts and minds. I, I pray certainly for the Nigros, but I pray for all of us that we would hear what the Spirit would have to say unto us because we're all on this journey and at various levels of growing in our strength. And I pray that you would have something specific for each and every hearer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, two simple points to this outline. We're going to see the example of Jesus, and we're going to see the example of the Apostle Paul. There's nothing you need to even fill out. It just falls out really simply. And we're going to start in verse number 3. And if you'll follow along, I want to read all the way down to verse 14, because that really deals with the example of the life of Jesus Christ and dealing with this main point that comes from verses 1 and 2. Pick up in verse number 3. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord all ye Gentiles and laud him all ye people. And again, Esaias saith, there shall be a root of Jesse and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Okay, so this section is truly about Jesus Christ being the ultimate example of a missionary. There's no doubt about that. He's the ultimate example of everything. There's no question about it. But it is true that without a doubt, Jesus Christ shows what it really means to have spiritual strength. I mean, he's God. God is strong. Endless verse references to that. But I just brought one of them to your attention. I liked in Psalms chapter 19 that you might be familiar with. The direct reference to which verse 5 is referring in Psalm 19 is the Son, S-U-N. But we know in Malachi 4 that the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness is Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 19.5 it says, Which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. Why did I show you that? Because Jesus Christ is clearly our bridegroom and certainly that bridegroom is full of strength. Amen. So going back to Romans 15 and verse number 3 it says, For even Christ pleased not himself. Paul obviously wants us to see the example of Jesus Christ in illustrating the principle of verse 1 and verse 2. He's offering the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ as that example and that we should learn, we should learn from that example. That's why verse 4 goes on and says, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. The life and times of Jesus Christ are written for your learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So what was Jesus' example? Well, this is in your notes. Jesus showed his strength by accepting his mission. Just like Joshua. 
He accepted the mission that was given to him. The mission was given to him because he was strong enough to be able to handle it. What was his mission? Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. It's the mission of a missionary. So what was Jesus' earthly ministry really all about? Well, if you've been in this church regularly, you already know that because we've been looking at it in some detail. If you've been coming this last month at 9 a.m., Tom's taken you through the Gospels. You have a fair idea of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this text, if you jump down to verse number 8, it's very clear, reiterated again. It says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. So clearly, it was a Jewish ministry to the Jews for a national salvation of Israel. But the sentence of verse number 8 does not end in verse number 8. Tom was making grammar references. I will continue. It ends with a colon. A colon is in a sentence to show you that what comes after the colon further describes what had come before the colon. You're welcome. Get ready for school, kids. Here we go. Verse 8 continues into verse 9. Let's so it says, he's a minister to the Jews. He's a minister of the circumcision. He wants to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, but why? Further explanation, verse 9, and that the Gentiles, oh, well, that's the whole world, might glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes the Old Testament over and over and over again, as it is written, for this cause I will confess thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. That comes from Psalm 18:49. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with all his people. That comes from Deuteronomy 32, 43. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. That comes from Psalm 117, verse 1. And again, Esaias saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. That comes from Isaiah 11, verse 10. So Jesus clearly was all about missions, right? I mean, no huge surprise. From the start, even though he had a specific Jewish earthly ministry, his goal was always all peoples. His goal was always all nations. But the gospel had to go to the Jew first. And that's Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, right? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And, and the way that you need to put it all together, the way it ought to be making sense to you by now, with all the time we've spent in the early chapters of the book of Acts, and all the time we've reviewed at 9 a.m. the Gospels, I summarized it in this sentence in your notes. Israel was the nation of people that God chose to work through to get the gospel to the nations. When the Jews finally rejected Jesus as their Messiah in Acts chapter 7, you saw that last week, God moved forward with the same mission to the nations, but now through a new chosen group, the Church of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ, a primarily Gentile bride of a Jewish kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. So let's go back now right, to verse number 3. 
where it says, For even Christ pleased not himself. Certainly we know that Jesus' life and ministry was a life of suffering. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 make that abundantly clear. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Because Jesus Christ kept all the commandments. Jesus Christ was strong. Jesus Christ's human pleasure would have been to avoid the cross, would have been that the wrath of God didn't fall on him for us. When he was praying in the garden, as it's recorded in Luke 22, 41 and 42, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So Jesus is strong. He, he surrendered to the mission of God to bear our infirmities, not pleasing himself, not doing what he would have preferred. And since that's what strong people do, bear the infirmities of the weak, well, that's literally what Jesus did when he bore our infirmities on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 says that, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So clearly, Jesus is the ultimate example of missions, as described in Romans 15, 1 and 2. But remember, this is recorded for you. It's for your learning. So he continues in Romans 15 and verse 13, and it says, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. It's an example for all of us to follow in our lives. And by the way, you can actually do it. It is possible. He goes on in verse 14 and says, and I myself also am persuaded of you that you have three great things going for you. You're full of all goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Goodness is doing good. It's acting for others' benefits. It's one of the elements of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. It says in Romans 2, let's keep the context missions, Romans 2 and verse 4, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. It's God's goodness, right? When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His goodness led you to repentance. Knowledge is simple. It's just the proper understanding of truth. So in the context of the mission, what do you need to know? You need to know that all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You need to know that the wages of sin are death. You need to know, right, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died in our place and offers the free gift of eternal life. And the ability to admonish others is not just saying we know that. To admonish is to take that knowledge and counsel the hearer to action. So the admonishment clearly is that if we'll confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, right, and 
believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll, we'll be saved. But in the event that you read through this and you see the life of Jesus Christ, you, you might think, well, I mean, that's good, that's great, I see it, that's a cool Bible study, but man, truly, me following the example of Jesus Christ, that, that bar is a little too high. I mean, he's deity and I'm a mere mortal. I mean, really, it's going to be tough. So Paul may be foreseeing that. The Holy Spirit certainly prompting Paul says, okay, now shift the narrative and let's look at the example of the Apostle Paul. And with that, if you'll follow along, I'm going to read the last section, verse 15 down to 22. He shifts to speak of himself. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have, therefore, whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming unto you. And so what we're dealing with here now is Paul recognizing that maybe you're thinking the calling of Jesus Christ is a little too high for you. So he brings it down to talk about his own example. And he says in verse number 15, and I think this is critically important as a launching pad for the, the remainder of this message, and really for the totality of our lives, when it says, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort is putting you in mind. Why? Because of the grace that is given to me. Of God. Remember where Paul was when he was Saul of Tarsus. Remember what kind of life he had before and what God did by his grace to make him the ultimate model human New Testament Christian, the Apostle Paul, the one which the scriptures repeat multiple times over and over again, follow me as I follow Christ. He received much grace. So in your notes, I wanted you to just kind of lock it down. Paul's life and ministry were empowered by God's grace. The fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, this should be good news to you. You can't serve God successfully on your own. You can't. If you've been frustrated trying, well, there's a good reason for that. You can't pull it off. You can't obey the commandments in the flesh. You can't do it under your own strength. People who try get weary and they quit. You need God's grace. But the good news is God gives us grace freely. Amen? Psalm 84, verse 11. I love this. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. He'll give it to you. You just really need to ask him for it. He's so good to us. And it was God's grace that gave Paul his spiritual strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 9. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. Now you know the story. Paul's praying. I've got this thorn in the flesh. This thing's really bugging me. It really hinders me. Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. 
I prayed three times and finally got answers. And here's God's answer. You're going through unpleasant circumstances, are you, Paul? My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Don't, don't miss this. That positioning of his life, that surrender to God and his commandments, set Paul on a course, not only as the model New Testament Christian, but also as an energized foreign missionary. So, what does a spiritual show of strength look like through the life of the Apostle Paul? Well, we have five points. They won't take a long time, but they're all delineated in this section of Scripture that we have right here. The first one is in verse number 16. We're just walking through the verses, and that's that it's a people ministry. It's a people ministry that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. That's always been God's goal, right? Ministering the gospel of God that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. So, you know, again, a lot of this is kind of elementary Christianity 101, but, you know, just humor me for a second because I think it's important that we lay this foundation. Ministry, real biblical ministry, is people. Ministry is not programs, it's not projects, it's not humanitarian aid or education. It's not even a, a, a medical clinic, and unless that's used to get people to the gospel, right? And that's what they're using it for. In other words, it's not welfare. It's not hospitals. Those are all good things, but what do those things do in and of themselves? They address the wrong kind of weakness. They address economic weakness. They address physical weakness. They address whatever, biological health issues. They address whatever they address. They don't address spiritual weakness, not in and of themselves. Biblical ministry is putting people in front of God's word. Now, if these other things serve to allow you to do that, then that's great. But if they don't, don't kid yourself, it's not ministry. Paul said that he would be a minister of Jesus Christ to certain people, the Gentiles that the offering up of the Gentiles in their new life and salvation would be acceptable to God. Paul was all about the people. When I first went to Albania in 1992, there weren't any Christians. I went there to start a church. But the church is people. So I needed to start by winning people to Jesus Christ. It would have been stupid for me to go and build a building and pretend it was the Christian version of Field of Dreams. <laughs> because you can build it, but they won't come if they're not saved. This is the strategy people employ today. They build a structure, and then they hope to recruit, um, put in parentheses, steal, Christians from other people's ministries so that they can have them in their ministry and say, look at the church I planted. It's a common strategy. There were none of those back then. And while that's not the case now in Albania, the strategy for Vinnie and Megan clearly is the same. They need to win lost people to Jesus Christ. 
It needs to be about the people. Or they're kidding themselves. Well, it's not only a people ministry. Point number two, it's a personal ministry. Now, you say those are the same. Actually, they're not the same. Here, the Lord is emphasizing that this ministry is not only to be focused on people, but that it needs to be your personal, individual investment in those people. He goes on in verses 17 and 18. He says, I have where, therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me. Think about that statement for a second. To make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. Paul wasn't going to glory in another man's ministry efforts or success. He was only going to talk about what God did through him personally. Too many people are satisfied just being around the action. They're like CNN reporters of the body of Christ, the Christian News Network. They don't actually make any news. They just report what others are doing. That's not the Pauline model. That's not what it is. If I want to give glory to God for what he did in Albania between 1992 and 2006, I'm not going to talk about what others did. And others did some great things. I'm going to talk about what God used me to do, personally. That's actually important. Now, Vinny and Megan, they're going on an internship. It's ministry, but it's also training. So they're going to work under Pastor Sazan Hojai. And that's great. And in fact, I want you to know that Pastor Sazan is very excited to have them join them. So I have a brief video from Pastor Sazan just to let you know how excited he is. All right, so... That's Pastor Cezanne and his daughter, Adela. She's a college student, and uh, her English is pretty good. It, don't ask Errol about the translation. It was pretty good. Um, and, and everything is pretty exciting, right? And you got to, a glimpse of the, the apartment that they're going to be living in and that sort of a thing. I, I realize it's questionable, Vinny and Megan doing English lessons. I'm not sure about I'm sure Megan will be fine. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you heard him say it's mostly just about relationships. So praise the Lord for that. Um, Listen, they're going to participate under his leadership. They're going to participate in his ministries. Yes, okay, we're talking about this being a personal ministry. But they're going to have their own efforts. They're going to have their own relationships. They're going to have their own witness, right? So that's an important thing. Let's continue with our um, outline. Point number three is that it's a powerful ministry. Verse 19 says, Through mighty signs and wonders and by the power of of the Spirit of God. Now the key phrase is by the power of the Spirit of God. We know that the signs and wonders were temporary gifts given primarily to the apostles during the first century church. We've studied that before. I'm not going to study that for you except just to remind you, for example, that that's true. Acts 2.43, fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by everybody. No, they were done by the apostles. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. What are those? And signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So we're not confused about the current abuses by the charismatic brethren, but the principle still applies, amen? 
We need to have our ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 127 says, except the Lord build the house, right? We labor in vain. That's what it says. And we know, right, Acts 1.8, that the power of the Holy Spirit will cause you to be witnesses unto him, right? You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. So that being the case, what would you expect to see in Paul's Holy Spirit-empowered ministry? Well, that he would be a witness from Jerusalem unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what verse 19 continues to say, right? By the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I've fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, for those of you who aren't aware or who haven't taken the time to look at the maps at the end of your Bible, ancient Illyricum is the landmass that encompasses modern-day Albania. Very interesting. And it constituted the uttermost of Paul's travel, well, at least to that point. And he had faithfully preached the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost because there's no limits where the gospel should not go. And so when you combine a personal ministry and a powerful ministry led by the Holy Spirit, what you're going to get is point number four, and that's a pioneering ministry. A pioneering ministry. Verse 20 says, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. This is taking the gospel to people who have yet to have the opportunity to hear it. In other words, be like Captain Kirk. Boldly go where no man has gone before. It's not that hard to do, by the way, because there are people all over the world who have never one time heard a clear presentation of the gospel. I know that this particular passage of Scripture was a great motivation for me in the early 90s when I was prayerfully considering what I would do with my life. I was sick of preaching the gospel to the same people over and over again who had rejected it hundreds of times while others around the world had never had one chance to hear the gospel be made available to them. I wanted to make my personal contribution to fulfilling the Great Commission in our generation. I was willing to go to new places. I was willing to do it without the comforts of home not to please myself, but to bear the infirmities of the weak. Where in the world would I have gotten such a crazy idea? From the Bible, from the Apostle Paul, from Romans 15. Where in the world did the Apostle Paul get that crazy idea? Well, interestingly enough, he got it from the Bible. Verse 21, but as it is written, that's Isaiah 52, 15. To whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. You see, the Apostle Paul was just faithfully going through his Bible reading when he got to Isaiah 52. And God spoke to his heart about his plan for his life. Do you know what comes immediately after Isaiah 52, 15? Now, some of you are thinking verse 16. I know that's what you're thinking. <laughs> but there is no verse 16. What comes next is Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 53, most of you know, is the greatest Old Testament messianic prophecy of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Listen, 
Let me tell you something. If you set out and position your life to get the gospel to lost people that didn't have access to it before, you're going to be on the devil's radar. And that leads us to our last point, number five. It's a persecuted ministry. He goes on verse 22 and he says, For which cause? Because he did all these things, there were some consequences, some results. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. See, the devil doesn't like you doing stuff like that. And he's going to try and stop you from doing it. And there can be any number of supposedly legitimate reasons, excuses, for people to stop doing this kind of ministry. But at the end of the day, you know who's behind it. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but somebody hindered us. That was Satan. Satan hindered us. Because whenever you take out, take, set out to take the gospel to new people in new places and preach it to them, you're, you're opening the door for people to get saved. You're opening the door for their eternity to be changed. So Paul reminds us, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Paul's ministry was a persecuted ministry. He had problems all along the way. And, and we'll talk more about that as we get deeper into the book of Acts. And you'll see, especially after chapter 13, and he sets out on his missionary journeys. But he was threatened. He was lied about. He was chased out of town. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was stoned, and he was left for dead. But he continued to preach the gospel everywhere. While in jail in Acts chapter 16, the guard of his prison cell got saved. And even it went so deep that in Philippians 4.22, he has this testimony. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. People in Caesar's household were getting saved. But do you want to know the main way the devil stops ministry you'll find it in Galatians 5 verse 7 you did run well who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth brothers and sisters I want you to notice that it does not say what did hinder you because it's never a what that hinders you it's always a who Horton hears a who not a what there's always going to be some person that's going to try and get in your head and fill you with some non-biblical nonsense, frequently in the form of some prejudice or judgment or appealing to your comfort to talk you out of continuing. You may even feel righteous about it. You may even feel justified in your actions. But at the end of the day, you quit. And the devil rejoices. So let me just wrap it up with this. Church, what's your example of your life? What does your individual life show? Or what would you like for it to show? Because all of this is written for you. Will you show strength? by bearing the infirmities 
of the week by forsaking your own pleasure for the gospel? Because you can. It just all starts with a simple decision that you're going to obey his commandments no matter what the cost is to you. And it can change you forever. Now I want to take the next minute and we want to ask the Nigros to come on down front and uh, I'm going to have Josh and Craig join me up here on the stage and we want to pray for them. Because what we want to do is just commission them for this trip. The worship team can go ahead and come on up and get your places while we're getting ready because we're just going to pray for these guys. And, uh, and just ask God's blessing and protection over them for the next, well, let's just say 11 months while they're going to be serving in, in Albania. This is no question. It's going to be a great step. It's exciting. We rejoice with you guys, but, but it's a big step. And there's going to be situations come up, and it's not always going to be as fun as it is this morning, right? And that's why I wanted to, to, to just warn you. Um, but you have shown strength in your life, and, and you have proven that you are willing to go and take the gospel and sacrifice personal comfort already. That's why we have confidence in praying and commissioning and charging you to go do what you would what you would do if you'll just come come on this side with us over here and uh, i'm going to ask these brothers so if you just go in order craig you pray and then josh and then i'll 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 close this out